Hello, everyone. This is W, also known as William, host of the High Art on the Edge page. Welcome to the very first brand new show called Two Tickets, Please, where we get to talk and share our love for cinema. Now, I brought in a friend all the way from Belfast, Ireland, and his name is Michael Hare. And if you think you know me and movies, wait till you meet Michael. Let's bring him in. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Two Tickets, Please. Thank you for being my co-host. How are you? Hi, GW. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. Good to finally be able to find somebody who loves my my passion for rubbish films from the 80s and and everything in between. Looking forward to, to getting down to the nitty-gritty and some interesting facts over to some of our childhood favorites. I want to let the audience know how I found you. I found you on the Beastie Boys public community page via Facebook. And I was taken and with great amazement on these film reviews that you would write and share enthusiastically. And I loved the way that you sculpted your words in order to explain and articulate your feelings on a movie, the acting, what have you. And so reaching out to you and asking you to be part of the show is an immense pleasure. And I'm looking forward to not only doing this first one, but subsequent episodes. So let's get started. I was thinking about what's the first question I want to ask you, because there are so many different possibilities. But I'm going to ask you this. When did your love for cinema begin? Who planted that seed? How was it planted? Go ahead and share. Well, I, I was speaking to my mom prior to the, prior to the show to, to find out some, some things. Uh, growing up in the late 70s and 80s, well into the 90s too, in Northern Ireland, it could have been, it could be a challenging place. I asked her what it was like. I would have been five when I first, when I, when I first remember going to the, to the cinema and not many people in Belfast went out at night. Our troubled past sort of put a quash on all, all sorts of nightlife. I wouldn't say I was shielded from it, but I just wasn't aware. So we went on many trips to the cinema. And supposedly my first ever movie that I, was Disney's The Jungle Book when I was one and a half years old. Now, I don't remember anything about it, of, of course, but supposedly I sat there transfixed and my mom knew that I'd be fine with anything that we went to see. After that, my first memory was probably... The Muppet movie in 1979. The Muppet movie actually came out six months before in the UK before US. So that got me because how did they manage to make Kermit ride a bike? That, that to me that was like that was like magic on a, on a level I couldn't understand. So you know. It's one of those things. Cinema can transport you to other worlds. It can it can make you happy. It can make you cry. It can make you think about things you didn't really know you had to think about. 
make you go, make you forget your worries for two hours, you know. And and you know, sometimes the world's cra- a crazy place, and it's good to just sit back and let something wash over you. So I got interested in how things were done behind the scenes, and as I got older, I could I could sort of recognise. Oh, look at that shot composition. That's amazing. Camera movement. You know, if you look at something like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, that's like that's like a, a film school all on its own. And, and I mean, I'm not. That's very. That's a very highbrow film. I would I would consider. I like all kinds of stuff. So. Whatever, whatever takes my fancy, I'm into it. Thank you for sharing. I just realized as you were speaking, I have some great connections to the Jungle Book. Like you, I was transfixed. Not only what I was watching on the screen, but what I was hearing, the jazzy arrangements. I saw that movie at a drive-in movie theater with my mom, and I was just kind of bewitched. With regards to the Muppet movie by James Frawley, like you, I wondered how they did some of those effects with the puppetronics. And I used to watch that movie over and over and over again with my buddy Dave. And I was always delighted by the dialogue. And to this day, I'm still quoting Rolf the dog. I'm still pulling out little bits and pieces from that movie. So I'm glad you picked those. And I'm. it sounds like your mother had an influence on this exposure to cinema for you. And exactly the same with my mom. She used to take us to movies all the time. So, W, how did you get started in, in cinema? Well, Michael, that is a great question. As I just mentioned, my mom, sometimes my dad, took us to the movies. It was for my birthday, just down the road here in Menlo Park. We went to go see this movie called Superman. And I remember before it even started, I had some idea about it was just a gentleman flying around in a cape. So I got up and I started running down the aisle pretending I was Superman. And I just went back and forth and back and forth. And my mom said, get back here. You need to sit down. I was that amped up to see this movie. So based on memory, Superman was the one that really flew my imagination. And I had this sense that anything was possible on that screen. And I remember when those credits opened, and I'll go into further detail later, and the the orchestral sounds kind of inserting themselves into that the opening credits. I just knew I was in the lap of incredible imagination and creativity. Obviously, as five or six years old, I couldn't articulate it. I think for me, growing up with cinema was always something right there at our fingertips, whether it be renting movies from video stores, my mom taking us to movies all the time. In fact, she took us to movies sometimes and just dropped us off because she probably wanted three boys out of her way. <laughs> and and I had friends we'd do sleepovers with and we'd watch movies, mostly scary movies. So. Looking in the rearview mirror, 
I, I look back with such great fondness and appreciation and love for cinema and how much it's done for me. With regards to movies having a big impact on you, Michael, why don't we, or why don't you share one out of three movies here? What is a movie that really spoke to your heart, really captivated you? Right. Well, there are so many. It's difficult to narrow it down to three. So some of these films, I might have been too young to see at the time and saw saw later from when they originally came out. But they all have a deep memory lock on them. So I'm going to start off first with, I hope you can see these because my lighting's really, really bad. But this is oh, John Carpenter's The Fog. This film is from 1980. I would have been far too young to have seen it in 1980. I was far too young to see it when I did see it. But this is his follow-up to do the smash hit Halloween. And did okay. It wasn't it wasn't received extremely well, but it's 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 it did okay. So the story I have about it is that my mum was a social worker who worked in a children's home. And in the early 80s, on a Saturday night, the older teenagers could go to the video store and rent more explicit movies, not like really explicit, but like like a bit harder than PG when the, when the younger kids went to bed. So one of these films was The Fog. And I was allowed to stay up. And that for me, that was my first experience of horror. So I would have said this would have been it would have been 81 or 81 or 82. It was a new release on VHS. So now my mum is not a big horror movie fan. So what happened is she, when a scary bit was coming on, she would cover her eyes and say, tell me when it's over, tell me when it's over. And of course, the kids knew this fine rightly and went, oh, it's over now, just as somebody was getting a pickaxe through the eye or something like that. And everybody found this hilarious. But like, I was just sitting there watching it in awe. I mean, I, I don't think I was even scared. I just, I just like, this is amazing. What's going on? When I met my wife all those years later, one of our big things that that we got together about was horror movies, and one of her favorite movies is Fog. So we've watched that film I don't know how many times, and never get tired of it. It's just it's just it's just a great piece of of exploitation cinema. I have a question regarding the Fog. One of the reasons what I love about this movie is the cinematography by Dean Kundi, who also was responsible for the incredible look and feel of ha Halloween. He provides such atmosphere. What is it about the fog that really spoke to you? I think it, probably it's just an old-fashioned ghost story. It, you know, there's it's there's no frills to it. It's just they set it up, they explain what what's going to happen and it happens. It's it, I mean, it, it the thing the thing with John Carpenter's movies that elevates it from from standard slasher fare would be a Dean Condy's cinematography and B Carpenter's own soundtracks 
like they're always dripping with atmosphere and they're, they're always they're, they're like they're so good you know I, I was actually lucky i saw john carpenter perform his themes live in dublin about five or six years ago and it was like i it was one of the most best concerts i've ever been to that experience must have been quite indelible yes your apps are i i love that dripping with the atmosphere and let's not forget in this movie has a great cast adrian barbeau who he used in escape from new york tom atkins halloween three of course you know scream queen jamie lee curtis and great performance by hal holbrook i've always liked his work nancy loomis Charles Cipher. So he brings back all of his crew from Halloween, a lot of them. And you nailed it. There aren't a lot of frills to this movie. It's kind of left up to the imagination a little bit. Very Hitchcockian at times. There's a wonderful YouTuber who talks about movies. And he does this huge thing on Halloween. That's what he's known for. His name is Dave McRae. But he'll also talk about other Carpenter movies and so on. But he talks about The Fog and what he loves about it is there's great nuance to it. And I wholeheartedly agree. Anything else you want to share about The Fog before we move on? No, I am interested to hear what your first pick is. Well, my friend, I have been waiting and waiting to share my first pick. I kind of already did. But I want to go in greater detail. But I'm not going to fly in with a cape. I'm going to go with Superman, the movie, the one with Christopher Reeve, the one with Glenn Ford, Ned Betty, Margot Kidder. You heard my story about wearing the cape in the movie theater, although it was all pretend. Well, I actually got a cape when I was a wee bit older, and I used to put it on and fly around the backyard and front yard and literally think I was Superman. When that movie came to ABC and we recorded it, I must have watched that movie 50 to 75 times over and over. And I used to watch it so often, my mom and her dad would say, you need to go to bed. There's something that I re that really resonates with me re regarding that movie. And I or something I feel a connection to now that I'm older and it's kind of Superman being this slightly fish out of water character, someone that is not in, um, people could say he's an alien, but he's not, but I kind of felt that way too, because I was adopted and I felt special. I didn't feel powerful, but I felt special and I felt different from a lot of people. And I just couldn't articulate why. So that's how I started connecting to this character. It wasn't just so much he could save Lois Lane. It wasn't so much he could lift up a truck when he was a baby or a young boy. Although I did do admire those scenes. But for me, what I love is there's humanity in this story. The love story between he and Lois Lane is beautiful. And yes, the scene where they're flying over New York. Some may say it's dated, a little bit cheesy, but there's that romantic quality about it, along with the sweeping moving score by John Williams. And those credits at the beginning, they don't make credits like that anymore. They hurry the movie. 
And I like when it takes its time. I want to know who's in the movie, who's the producer, all that stuff. So you start a movie that way, and you have that phenomenal, indelible score by John Williams. And I have a feeling this man is going to come up in many conversations. I particularly just love the mood. And let's not forget this movie was written by Mario Puzo and Richard Donner, who I believe just came off the heels of The Omen, or he was going to do. I can't remember which one came first. So I love Superman, and I love the logo, and it's a great, campy movie. Well, just to add add my thoughts on Superman, Superman, for me, is the greatest superhero movie ever made. You touched on it. But what I say, what I would say, it it has an abundance of is is heart. It's just you know, it takes its time building the character up before you actually see him. And what you said about the credits, I love the way how it begins. It begins like an old thirty serial, you know, like square ratio, and then just expands out as as the credits roll over. I mean that score, that 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 theme, you know. That builds your anticipation even more. Uh, what you were talking about when you said said it was on ABC. Now I only discovered this recently. There are three versions of Superman the movie. There's the theatrical cut. There's the expanded edition, which came out I think around about two thousand, which has about I think it's about seventeen or eighteen minutes additional footage. And then there's a three hour and ten minute television cut that was aired over two nights that basically has everything in it like all the cut cut out things i only i only found this out and i was looking for it and found it in blu-ray so it's quite i've only watched it quite recently so it's fresh in my mind and this this is probably after it was what was it it was the 45th anniversary last year it was 78 so I actually went to see it in the cinema in a 4K restoration last year, last last Easter, and like just sitting there in the cinema, it was it was just like you know that theme came on, like the tears tears of happiness rolling out out my eyes. It was it was an amazing experience, and there was kids behind me going, "This isn't Henry Cavill." <laughs> oh, that must have been pretty awesome. And I completely forgot. I learned later that the great DP cinematographer, Gregory Jeffrey Unsworth, was in charge of that, who is well known for 2001. I think, I think my, my first experience of Superman, Superman would have been Superman 2 in the cinema. But, I mean, it's, it's Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve is what makes that movie. Like, all those movies. I mean- Let's wrap up Superman with one more comment I have to make. Another thing that I love about this movie is what what Richard Donner was able to get out of these bit characters. So you have Ned Betty, you have Glenn Ford, Jackie Cooper, but I love Terrence Stamp as General Zod. Obviously, we're going to get more of him in Superman too. But that opening scene, the lighting on that, the dialogue, the extreme close-up of his mouth. Oh, amazing. 
Okay. We could sit here and talk Superman all day. What is film number two for you? Film number two. I'm going to go backwards in time a little bit. And I am going to go with another John Williams score. I'm going to go. This film, I have a strange relationship with this film because... As I said, my mother worked in a children's home, so sometimes I couldn't be with her and I would stay at my grandmother's house. And I don't know about American TV, but most Saturday Saturday early evenings there would be a movie on. And I had seen Jaws before, but this particular evening I was sitting on the floor in my, of, uh, in, in my grandmother's house. She was on her, on her rocking chair behind me, half asleep, and Jaws came on. And I got really, really involved in it. Like, like it was the first time that it, that it actually, it, it, like the fear crept in, and it was, it was, it was, it, it was hitting all the right beats and working where exactly it meant to. And we got to the bit where Roy Schneider and Richard Drivers were out on the boat in the night, and they find the upturned boat, and Richard Drivers goes diving underneath, and he finds he finds a tooth in a big hole in the boat and he shakes shakes the tooth loose and a head falls out. And it was at that point my grandmother woke up and went, that's fake, it looks like a football. And that ruined Jaws for me for, I'd say, 10 years at least. I couldn't watch Jaws because she, 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 she'd ruined it. She'd taken all the magic away from it. Now, obviously, now I, I, I completely get what a masterpiece that that film is i have actually seen it in a swimming pool like in the water while they showed it in the and the best thing about that was there was lots and lots of children about who had never seen it before so i was watching their reaction to the things that were going on the screen and it still works it's still it still slays people oh my goodness these are wonderful stories your grandma <laughs> hey, it happens. But, I, you know, before I ask you a Jaws question, I need for you to know this, okay? Did you know in 1975, and Jaws was the, the one that started the whole idea of blockbusters, right? It was the summer movie. But listen to these other movies that came out in 1975. You had Nashville. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and then a movie I'm going to talk about, not today. Okay, One yes, I see it. Over the Cougar's Nest, Dog Day Afternoon. So the reason why I'm trying to provide some context, there were some heavy hitters as far as great movies coming out that year. With regards to Jaws, Michael, and I love how you shared that experience about watching people experiencing it for the first time. It is horrifying as a viewer to not see that shark for a long time. What other elements about that movie that you appreciate to this day? It's like the boy's own adventure. You know, it's like, you know, here's, it's like, it's like Moby Dick, you know, here's, here's the wheel. And here's Captain Ahab, Robert Shaw, 
going full tilt crazy in it. And, it, you know, you've got the speech about the USS Indian- Indianapolis and the, and the, the score, comparing scores. You've got, you've got like the, the, the trope where, where there's one person, the hero knows what's going wrong and what's going to happen and everybody else doesn't believe him. You've got, you've got amazing cinematography. You've got, you know, that, what was it? Was the dolly zoom. So the camera moves out while focusing in on Roy Snyder as he sees a little boy getting eaten. The set pieces in that are, are, are phenomenal. I mean, a lot of people talk about that one. My favorite bit is when the boys are in the lake, the lagoon just off the side and it comes in and, there's an uh, there's a another sailor trying to help them, and he gets knocked off the boat, and you see you see the leg falling to the, the ocean floor. It, it, there's a bit where the where the cameras just swoops over the heads of the children, and it's you can you can see how terrified everything is, and I mean it it, it is one of the most most iconic and perfect movies. I mean if you're going back, I mean, if you're going back to saying. You know that was the start of blockbusters. I mean, you have to remember, like the most successful film at that point, I think, was The Godfather. And like people, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that The Godfather is a bad movie in any way, shape, or form. What I'm saying to you is that was what people were were going to see in the seventies. And what you were saying about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Dog Day Afternoon, the Rocky Horror, you know, all these movies still have stood the test of time and still like draw audiences you mentioned about bill butler's wonderful use of cinematography absolutely let's not forget how many indelible lines and one of the most iconic lines everybody knows but i'm going to give you one here not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cats this shark swallow you whole i still say that line to my brothers and they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's because we care about these characters. And I love, because I actually had my notes here. It's a, it's a high-going sea adventure. And you really, you really are drawn to what's happening on that screen. Not just the sheer terror and horror, but what's happening to these three men who are trying to chase this political monster if you will. Before we wrap it up, I want to ask you, Michael, and our audience, there's something in that movie I never understood. The color yellow appears often. Where? When Chief Brody is walking down downtown, he's, he picks up yellow paint, yellow in the kitchen, I believe. The barrels are yellow. Do, what's your theory on yellow? I have never noticed this before. <laughs> I'm gonna to have to watch it again now and see if I can catch it on. I have no idea. <laughs> so you as a listener to this podcast, if you have any theories about the yellow, that's great. Now I'm sure there's something online that tells you exactly what it is. That's great. But if you want to try to just theorize without using the internet, that's even better. All right, yes, another great movie, a long list of Steven Spielberg and the sheer madness, the sheer hell he went through in making that movie. 
check it out, everyone. It's all over YouTube. You can find the behind the scenes and Bruce the shark named after the lawyer. Great pick, Michael. So, W, what's your second film? Well, Michael, I'm going to stick with the Steven Spielberg theme here. However, this movie in the early 80s was swirling with controversy. Yes, it was terrifying. Yes, it was scary. But who really directed this movie? And of course, I am talking about one of the greatest horror movies of all time. This would be Poltergeist. Directed by Toby Hooper, produced by Spielberg and Frank Marshall. I picked Poltergeist because, like Halloween, it scared the bejesus out of me. Lake Tahoe, 1982, my parents took us to see this film. I had no idea what it was about. None. And I remember the opening scene being like, oh, peaceful, small town USA, California, great. This is going to be fun. Remote control cars, footballs, movie, or we're watching some football game. And then we get into the whole Carol Ann scene where we're introduced. And then she says her famous line. This movie took my mind into a whole new dimension of sight and sound. This movie tapped on my window pane about what is death? What is the afterlife? This movie was about family and how the external forces try to rip us apart and how do we stay together and not come unglued. But overall, what really captivated me about this movie was Heather O'Rourke and Carol Ann. There was something about this character I was so drawn to. There's such a sweetness and innocence, and that's what makes the movie so horrifying. It's because you feel that love for her and everybody else on that screen. But to have this daughter, child, abducted and not knowing why and how, yeah, that really resonated with me. We can talk about the clown, of course, as I would check under the bed. I would check in the closet. But another thing is, as I'm holding my hand, is the soundtrack. This is a phenomenal score by Jerry Goldsmith. Masterful, frightening, and very childlike qualities to it. So that's why I picked Poltergeist. And I recently saw it last year. Holds up beautifully. And I have in my notes here, remind me to tell Michael about this story. So in the movie, after Carol Ann was taken and... They go through the rebirth scene. They bring in Zelda Rubenstein and they get the family back together and they fall through the ceiling. And it's like they're coming out of the birth canal and they've got all this jelly-like stuff on them and they fall in the bathtub. Such an endearing moment. And the next scene, the mom is outside gardening and the older daughter goes up to her and she goes, oh, your hair, your hair. And the mom goes, oh, you don't like it? Basically, it was turning gray, but it was ghost white. And I never understood that scene, why she had to point out the hair. 
It took me years to figure out, oh my God, the ghost is still there. <laughs> and they just use it beautifully as, as her just kind of going through that horrific experience and aging really fast. So I just wanted to share that with you. I Sometimes when you rewatch these movies, you pick up great little things that you just never saw before. Well, what I mean, you, go ahead. The, the thing with Pol- thing with Poltergeist again, it was it wasn't a cliche at the time, but it does do that old burial ground th- trope that horror movies like to use, like somebody's built something on top of an old burial ground, and the ghosts aren't happy about it. It's a great it's a great snapshot of early eighties life, I think. Well. In American eighties life, <laughs> here not so much. the The controversy with Toby Hooper and did he direct it or not? I think he did. Now, Steven Spielberg was probably a hands-on producer, and it does feel very Spielbergian. But Steven Spielberg has never directed a horror movie, and he's. Well, but suppose Jaws, maybe, but you know, it, it, not as nothing visceral, and and all the scares are handled handled really, really well. And it takes somebody who knows what they're doing to deliver something like that. I mean, the, the bit with it's one of the para, paranormal researchers. He goes into the bathroom and starts scratching at his face, and the face starts falling apart. Like, I mean, that's a pretty hardcore scene for a for a PG movie. And that's a great connection to another movie we're going to talk about, a kind of a melting face. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but you're right. And let's, again, what I love about what we're discussing is we're talking about a movie that was surrounded by other great movies that year. Gandhi, E.T., one of my favorite sci-fi horror movies, The Thing, one of my favorite comedies. Tootsie, Pink Floyd, The Wall. So this movie sits amongst and on the shelves of so many other great movies. And it, I feel like it performed beautifully at the box office. It definitely held its own muscle and flexed it fantastically. And most importantly, it holds up the messages, the themes, the acting, what you see on the screen. And like most good movies, what you alluded to earlier, Michael, is when you're looking at the special effects as the viewer, we should be asking ourselves, how did they do that? And I still kind of marvel at that. Let's move on to movie number three. What is your third pick? Okay, I'm going to go for a slightly left field choice, but I do have reasons for this. So here we go. Now, this was called breakdance in the UK because people didn't know what breaking was. So this tells you now just 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 to prove how big a fan I am of this movie, I actually also have the sequel soundtrack. And I forgot to lift it, but there was an unofficial third movie. So break, breaking two was breaking breakdance two electric boogaloo. Rapping it's a film called Rappin'. It stars Mario Van Peebles. It was Breakdance 3, Electric Boogaloo. But anyway, back to the original. The first time I ever watched this, I actually, where I'm living now, isn't actually that far away from where I grew up. So 
maybe five, 10 minute walk away from here, there was a local community center where, where all the kids would go around and like, they would like play foot, foot soccer, sorry, or roller skate or table tennis or learn to DJ or do weights, all kind, you know, a community center stuff did. And they would also do movie nights. So they, they popped this breakdance into the, into the, the VHS recorder. And my mind was blown. I, I, I mean, if you, I'm not, a, I'm not a big musical fan. I'm not a big dance movie fan, but what these guys were doing is was incredible to my 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 small, tiny mind. With the body popping, there's a bit where one of them is dancing around a broom where you can see you can see the string that's holding it holding it together, but he's dancing around the 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 craft works Tour de France, and it's like it's the most incredible thing. Like it it it, it was just it. Yes, the soundtrack is 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 mainly pop music and not hip hop at all, but it definitely focused my brain on wanting to learn more about hip hop and more about that sort of culture. So that brought me on to everything that hip hop was in the mid mid to late eighties and how, what it became. I'm not a big fan of newer stuff, but that's my personal taste. I'm not saying anybody's terrible. I'm just saying I, it's not for me, but. You know, that film made me what I am today. And you can't really, I mean, how many really cheesy canon group movies can you say that about? I am so happy you brought that film into our discussion because I wasn't expecting that. And I do remember seeing that in the movie theaters with my brothers. And we were gobsmacked, particularly of that sweeping the broom. And yes, you could definitely see kind of how they did that special effect. And I didn't realize for years later that was craft work. So it, another another it, little it, nugget. Go it ahead. It wasn't on the soundtrack, so yeah, and you know, there's heart. There's good 80s heart to that movie. Lucindy Dickey's performance and I have a feeling if they made that movie today it might be slightly gratuitous. It might be extremely explicit, you know, explicit. I could be wrong. I think the break dancing would be even more sensational and fabulous, but I don't, I think it would probably just do a little bit of overreaching. And that was the great thing about the eighties. It's just, you have these gems that I don't think we're trying to do more than what they were offering there. And people just fell in love with some of those things. Revenge of the Nerds, obviously Breaking, Better Off Dead. Some really good screwball comedies. And although this is not a screwball comedy, I just feel as though it left the viewer feeling like, ooh, how did they do that? And I actually want to start breakdancing. And it started this huge trend. I mean, did you ever? Did you ever try breakdancing? Oh yes, yes, yes. Me, me, and my my friends would would frequently body pop into oblivion. So, uh, so tried spinning on my head, but I, c- I could never do it. I could never. It hurt too much to spin on your head. Great pick, Michael. Love it. Thank you for sharing. What I would say though is now. This is going to be controversial because I know there was a whole East Coast, West Coast rap thing. Breaking is West Coast. 
and that was all the body popping. But Beat Street is by far the better hip hop movie. I saw it later, so that's why it's not picked. But Beat Street is the if you want to to see hip hop being birthed very much from the beginning. It's 1984, so the same year as as Breaking. So I mean, it's it it's the early days of it. That has all the the, the the four elements and not moved on to five elements, but so there are five elements of hip hop. All of them are featured in Beat Street, and that is the movie to watch if you're interested in that period of time. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've seen Beat Street and Breaking, let us know your feelings. Love to hear them. Great. Okay, we are going to wrap this up with my third childhood movie that really had an impact can you guess what it is michael well you said melting face so <laughs> robocop <laughs> no it's not robocop it is another steven spielberg frank marshall screenplay written by the great lawrence kasdan of course i'm talking about raiders yes there it is as he's holding up the Raiders DVD Raiders of the lost Ark, 1981. I saw this film, the same place in Lake Tahoe that I saw poltergeist again, being seven years old, no idea what the film was going to be about. Walked out of that movie. I was ready to put on a hat, ready to buy a bullwhip. I was ready to go under a car, a truck, this movie had it all. Tremendous action sequences to this day are so jaw-dropping phenomenal. A great, lush, memorable score, of course, by John Williams. Harrison Ford introduced me to him other than Star Wars and kind of getting seeing more of his acting chops and providing some great comedy relief in there. The melting faces towards the end scared the hell out of me. And I think what really spoke to my heart was that the kind of like Jaws feeling, I love the adventure he goes on. And it's just kind of one episode after another that you're reminded of what a gift Spielberg has for storytelling and providing entertainment. It's one of those movies that when you see it on television and it's on, you don't turn it off. It's one of those movies that people quote all the time. And when you go experience the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland, so fabulous. So yeah, it's part of our lore. It's part of our cinema history. And that's why I'm picking my for my third pick, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. What are your thoughts on this movie? I knew I knew W had picked this one, so that's 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 why that's why I haven't mentioned it. But I do think this is my favorite movie of all time. It, it is. It it grabs you by the lapels from the opening scene and just doesn't let go until the end. It builds and builds, and just when you think there's, I mean. There's the, there's the escape from from the Peruvian tomb with the the, the boulder ch chasing our hero down at that, and then there's there's 
local tribes shooting arrows at him as he's trying to get into a plane and then there's a scene where they're put into the the well of souls with the the snakes and i mean it's just it's it's a phenomenal piece of work what i'd like to say that we haven't actually touched on is 80s movies movies from around that time that were I wouldn't say they were they were aimed primarily at kids, but they were a family sort of friendly. I mean, we talk about Jaws, we talked about Poltergeist. This, they weren't afraid to go into some very dark places and do some pretty nasty things that no one would try. Even even now, see, we have a twelve certificate here, which would be the same as a PG thirteen. But after that. You wouldn't get away with those in, in a PG thirteen nowadays. Like the Mar- Marvel movies, all all like lack bite. There's nothing. I don't feel that any, you know, urgency in in them a lot of the time. That's my opinion. I'm not bad. I think Marvel, by the way. <laughs> but I mean, I, there, I think there's a reason why Gen X grew up the way we did. You know, we, we were exposed to melty faces and 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 heads popping out of boats and and little girls getting abducted by televisions and you know we just had to harden up you know we had to we had to we had to because you never knew what was around the corner or or, or what was underneath the bed excellent points you just brought up with regards to raiders of the lost ark i love that you you get this timeline of geographical places the traveling to these exotic, crazy locations, I really liked. And I think, although I could be wrong, someone will correct me, I think this was Steven Spielberg's first movie with his longtime editor, Michael Kahn. And yeah, the editing is fantastic, particularly the, the chase scene in the desert. It doesn't get much better than that with that driving orchestral work by John Williams. All good. It's it's pretty much a flawless movie. The thing with the thing I would like to point out with you as well is there is a scene. I'd say it's it's towards the end of the movie when the when the Nazis have got the Ark and are traveling through the desert, and Indy has escaped and he corners them. In a, va- in a valley, and he has a bazooka on his shoulder. And the bad guy, Belloc, he's delivering this speech. And if you watch very closely, a fly lands on his chin and goes into his mouth. So that's just a little tidbit. You're always going to bring the nuggets. I appreciate that. All right, everyone. Those were our three movies each that had an impact on our childhood. Feel free to put down some movies that really spoke to you when you were younger. We'd love to hear about it. We're going to wrap up this conversation on what's coming down next for a future episode. Two tickets, please. Both Michael and I are super excited for the Oscars because we have pretty much seen now all the Oscars movies and What we're going to do in our next episode is we're going to pay a little bit of tribute to the Oscars by unveiling our picks for some pretty important categories, best film, best director, supporting actor, all that stuff. 
Michael is not going to know what I picked, and I'm not going to know what Michael has picked. It's going to be revealed on the day of. So I'm looking forward to that. That will be our next episode in March. And of course, we'll share this with you. So Michael, any closing thoughts before we really close the curtains with our favorite quote? Any closing thoughts? Because our next show is about the Oscars and because I'm very passionate about the breaking stroke break dance movie, I thought I would give you a quote from that cinematic opus. <clears throat> Award winners don't push brooms. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I love it. All righty. I'm going to end our conversation with this quote. And it's actually not a quote. It's an action, but it speaks volumes as if the dad had said this. And it's from the end of this movie. And if you've never seen it, spoiler alert, at the very end of Poltergeist, they move into a hotel room. They get in there. They are completely bedraggled. They are worn out. They're tired. They get inside the hotel room, and it's kind of this static shot. You don't see what they're doing inside the room, but all you hear is this squeaky noise. And then you see the dad push the television outside. He unplugs it, and he leaves it right there on the balcony. And nothing is said, and then the rain kind of starts to fall. And it's a perfect way to end that movie. And some things are best left unsaid. So there you go. All right, everyone. Michael Hare, thank you so much. This has been a great first episode of Two Tickets, Please. You had some amazing selections in there. And you definitely expressed your enthusiasm and love for not only those movies, but cinema. So can't wait to our next episode, which will be about the Oscars. My name is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. This is Two Tickets, Please, with Michael Hare and W. Frederick. Keep watching good movies. It's always right there in front of your eyes. Ciao.